Hey everyone, my name is Sumbul Siddiqui. And I'm Alana Mallon, and we are two new Cambridge City Councilors, and this is our weekly podcast, Women Are Here. So this week, we are so excited about a very special guest star we have here on our podcast, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Welcome to Women Are Here. Welcome. We're so excited to have you. Hell yeah, we're here. <laughs> we're all here. Yeah. We're all but here. But you all can't keep saying you're new. You're seasoned veterans, so you need a different tagline. I think actually we are going to keep saying it through our first term, <laughs> and then we're going to be like two old city councilors. Knocking okay. on wood. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Knocking on wood. <laughs> all right, then. Um, so before we get started, I just finished the first or the second season of Killing Eve last night. Have you seen it? I was disappointed. You were? I know. Mm-hmm. I was a little bit disappointed. Have you ever seen the show? I've never seen the show. Oh, my God. It's so, Well, the first season was so good. It's obviously about a serial killer, because that's my favorite. I really love serial killer shows. Oh, okay. Are you a fan of serial Okay, I'm going to tell you. So the thing that I can... There's two shows that if they are on, I cannot not watch. Okay. And there's a lot of shows that it's hard to come in, sort of in the middle and the end. But these shows... Uh, I can't resist. Dateline. Dateline. Yes. <laughs> I love Dateline. Totally. I do, and then if I have to leave, I am so upset because you don't know. No, you can't finish how it. How it is. Right. Okay. So Dateline. And then in that vein, um, I do love marathons of SVU. Law and Order, SVU only. Not the other Law and Order. Law and Order. S-V-U. Is that the one that Ice-T is on? Yes. Yeah, I love yes, that. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, the main character, whose mom was uh, uh, Jane Russell. She was a big deal uh, pinup back in the day. Olivia. Oh. Uh, Mariska. Oh, yeah. Hargitay. Oh, Hargitay. However mm-hmm. you say Yes, Mariska Hargitay. Love her. But, you know, uh, I, so I'm not up on all the people are always shocked. I've never seen The West Wing. I've never oh. seen Scandal. I've never seen Game of Thrones. Okay, me neither so, on the Game of Thrones. Same. So in terms Same. of like what's contemporary right now, um, the show that I love is The Shy. What's, oh, oh I, yes. On Showtime. Yeah. Yes. yes, very, yes. Very, That's really very good. Very well done. So good. Storytelling, character development, the cinematography, incredible. That's a really good one. I have to put that back on my list. I started yeah, watching and I got distracted. put it back on. It's the second season right now. So, but, um, but I love the complexity and the nuance and so... Yeah, um, those are really great shows. I think I'm... I get a little nervous. The SVU, I get kind of like, I get stressed out yeah. and anxious about yeah. all the ways I might be murdered. Right? <laughs> Ooh. Oh, <laughs> well, gosh, you know, but you know what, though? I like is that it mirrors, <laughs> they're inspired by current Absolutely. events. By yeah. current events. You if, know, so I really appreciate that. If I want something really mindless, I go to my favorite show. You know what it is. It is. It's that Bodice Ripper one. No, it's Friends. Oh, oh Friends. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. So I want, uh, yeah, I'm a huge Friends fan. Yeah. But so I don't know how to feel about that. What is that world? They don't have any brown people in that so world. So I was just going to say, it's really problematic. <laughs> it is really problematic. And I think growing up, I was like, this is, that's weird, but whatever. And don't they live in New York? They live in New York. So they're friends. They live in New York and they don't know brown people? I know. It, I mean, it, it, that's Hollywood for you. So <laughs> racist. But I, what I love is the friendship element yes, of it. And I think yes. about my amazing friends and I just, I'm like, oh. Friendship is the best, oh, so awesome. that's why I love the, the you show. You put a smile in my heart. <laughs> okay, my equivalent of that show, then I know we got to talk news, um, but I, I'm mad because it, the season ended, abru- the series ended abruptly, and they need to bring it back. So my equivalent of that was a show called Girlfriends. 
um, yeah. which was an Ooh, incredible, incredible that. show. Um, uh, Tracy Ellis Ross. That's She's how the she best. Was, that's how she was introduced to a lot of people. Can you believe I've never seen Blackish? I've never seen Blackish. Oh, we've talked about it on this show. Yeah. 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 I've it's never funny. seen it, but she was the sort of the lead on Girlfriends. And uh, it was like a Sex in the City, but with brown girls. And how old is the show? I'm not... Well, it's gone. I oh, mean, it's okay. one of those shows like um, Living Singles, these incredible shows with um, uh, women of color living together, navigating the world, uh, mostly hmm. single. And um, both shows sort of ended abruptly. And so hmm. it didn't get tied up with a neat and tidy bow. So, hmm. you know, but anyway. Yeah. So, but I do just want to say it's important. We work on a lot of heavy stuff and... Um, you know, we find ourselves in really unprecedented times and uncertain terrain. And so um, please don't ever feel guilty about uh, taking the time to do things that are mindless or restorative. Yeah, I mean, um, at the end know, of the day, it's really, really important. You have to do something to yeah. just kind of turn your brain off. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, we, we, all of us deal with so many different mm-hmm. things during the day. I need something that just is mindless, something I can, can escape into. Otherwise, I can't sleep. Yeah. One yeah. last question sure. before we mm-hmm. dig into the deep stuff. Who's your favorite musical artist? My favorite musical, you know what, my, my husband actually, um, uh, who was raised in Cambridge, uh, my husband Conan, Conan Harris, on 20 Upton Street in Central Square, um, he uh, was just yesterday saying that he doesn't think I like artists, I only like songs, mm. because I'll always just be like, this is my jam! <laughs> and right now it's like Tiana Taylor, like anything by Tiana Taylor, Queen Naja, you know, I'm all about, I like r and I, you know, um, uh, what's the girl that sings Boot Up? All this uh, 90s R&B, mm. that vibe has come back. And so I love 90s R&B. So Mary J. Blige, yes. that's yeah. probably like the song track of my life, mm-hmm. you know? Absolutely. Um, but then it is uh, widely known that I am the original candy girl and I am a new edition super fan. That's awesome. And I, I have say, seen them in concert multiple times. Invited them to my swearing in. I mean, so this is <laughs> you know, so you can, you can never ever go wrong with me um in new edition. But if if I were to think about, you know, what's what's something like I, I you know, a go to that I play on a regular basis. Um, it would probably be anything in the 90s R&B family, and, and MJB would be at the top of that list. That's awesome. What about you? I'm in the same kind of category. I love any 90s hip-hop R&B. Like, it just ma- brings me to a happy place. Yeah. Maybe yeah. to a simpler, I don't know, but that was like, that was my jam in the 80s and 90s. I know. I just can't believe that that music is considered retro. I'm having a real hard time with We're that. We're very young, you know? <laughs> right. It's like retro, baggy <laughs> jeans, and Doc Martens, and... You know, uh, I should start listening to some of that because I have some of a some of it of a um, a one artist. My favorite artist. You're gonna die. Actually, uh, I want to know this. Because drum roll, please. Uh, is she like into pop? No, no, no. I think West. she would be like into like Lilith, like acoustic stuff. No, like Tracy Chapman. I do love Tracy Chapman. Okay, okay. get ready. Celine Dion. What? <laughs> <laughs> I saw her in Vegas and it was the best day of my life. Girl. Okay, I'll, I'm going to give Celine some. Pro- Can I just say for a second, picking up on 90s, who misses 90s Mariah Carey? I know I do. Everybody. Mariah Carey with the hit, when she would do those, the, with, yeah, the, with the integration of hip hop, okay? But Celine Dion, listen. Her 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 gift is undeniable. I mean, you can't. Oh. I also loved her her uh her biopic she had a really good yeah 
she had a really good biopic, but um, I'm not mad at that choice. I'm not mad. I worry about her though, since her husband. I do. Passed, I do too. She's her toying. Bro- her brother was sick. Oh, her brother died. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, it's you know? she's been through so much. I am a huge fan. Like, I saw her in concert in Vegas and with my two dragon, two of my best friends, and it was probably the like. I cried. It was just amazing. My heart would go on, comes on, and you're just like, she's coming to Boston. I'm definitely saving up for those front rows. Wow. They're really expensive, but you know what? It's worth it. It's worth it. You know, listen, I think that's the best gift you can give yourself are not things, but to make memories. Exactly. You know, so you do that. Are you going to like wear a t-shirt and fan it? Oh, yeah. yeah. I I mean, we've talked about the t-shirt that she wants to make. It says hug me on it. Yeah. She's going to be in the first I had a dream that like she called me up on stage and just like a Bruce Springsteen moment. You're like an 80s video. Oh, (laughs) totally. I'm like you were wearing a hug me shirt and she called you up on the stage. I know. It's crazy. I'm giving you a hug. Oh, you don't need a t-shirt anyway, <laughs> love me Celine anyway so I'm glad we got to talk a little bit yeah, about our favorites yeah shake it out so shake, you can it, shake out. that shake out shake it out so we wanted to talk to you about a few things one I talked to my office I was coming over here and I was like well what would you say to Ayanna Presley mm. if if you know you were talking to her and they were like three different people at the same time said how do you do it mm-hmm. right so you know we started talking about the the housing committee video we saw of you with Ben Carson and having that moment with him and, and really talking with him. And what does that feel like in that yeah. moment and I'm, being in I'm that so position? I'm so glad you asked this because I do want to give people some insight because there are a lot of assumptions they make. So here's what's important to know. So one, I've been in Congress for four months. Which, um, really? <laughs> I, I've been in Congress four months. I've been very busy. Um uh, doing everything I can to stave off these oppressive, draconian, life-threatening, life-separating policies that it seemed are being rolled out by the hour. Um, I've co-sponsored probably 115 uh, bills, been very thoughtful and intentional about what I get on, but I've been a lead sponsor on four, which I'm not going to you know, unpack all that today, but I serve on two committees, financial services. And so under that, it allows me to tackle um, big issues that have created and are exacerbating the inequities that you and I, mm-hmm. uh, the three of us all work on, right? So I get to tackle credit invisibility and underbanking. I get to hold big banks accountable uh, for their abuses. I get to um, uh, demand more from uh, agencies that are meant to serve us, like the C- Consumer uh, uh, Protection uh, Bureau, right? I just passed an amendment there limiting their scope and their reach to um to collect debt through email and text messages. We know that people on fixed income, seniors, veterans, low income, people of color are disproportionately targeted by debt collection agencies. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. it's not even debt that you incurred, right? And so I get to to tackle those big things. And of course, housing um, is included uh, under the the Committee on Financial Services. And so, so, um, and I also serve on oversight and reform, which we can talk about some other time. But here's what I want you to know. It is our job when witnesses come before the committee. We work as members with our staff and also with the committee about based on what those witnesses have previously said on the record or policies they have rolled out, what do we need to get from them today on the record that it gives us further leverage in our reforms and the accountability that we're pushing. So we're sort of um, investigators that have five minute blocks right, it's very to short. get very specific information on the record. And so what happens between your staff and your committee 
they're determining out of all the members on the committee who should be delivering what line of questioning. Mm. Now, I have an incredible staff. They have core competencies in this space. Many of them have worked on this committee before. And so we often do our own research to come up with a creative line. So I just wanted folks to know that I was not browbeating Secretary Carson. I was asking him to give me a yes or no answer because I have five minutes. And I'm trying to establish foundationally some base things, some framework. And, and, and general understanding so that then I can I I advance and escalate in my line of questioning. And because he wouldn't give me those yes or no's on, on some things that to me, as someone who is a surgeon, seems so obvious, um, that's why it ratcheted up. And it saddened me because this is someone that I admired. Um, used to go, I, I don't know too many uh, black grandmama's houses you went into that did not have a picture from Jet Magazine of Ben Carson holding his hands up mm. as this brilliant neurosurgeon that would be on some magnet attached to the refrigerator. I mean, he was a source of, of, of great pride um, and, and inspiration. And so as I said in that hearing, it saddens me that his gifted hands and his gifted mind are being used to do the bidding of and to carry the water of, of, of someone that I, an administration that I consider to be completely void of any empathy uh, or compassion. And he was so smug and so dismissive and so callous. And um, in all of our back and forth, you know, what I fear got lost in that is that uh, to me, the most contentious part of that exchange was when um, I put up on the screen that picture images was, yeah. from a real family yep. in real time, the Norcross family. Um, they live in Brighton. Uh, There's a mother and a grandmother, and the grandson uh, has bone tumors and can't get the surgery that he needs to uh, be healthy, to improve his quality of life, to preserve his life because he doesn't have a safe post-operative place to recover. And so the secretary was so callous, and ultimately that's why I just said, would you let your grandmother live here? You know, I mean, and, and he wouldn't even answer that. You and know, I, so. I didn't feel like it was browbeating as much as you were trying to get an answer from somebody exactly. who wouldn't give it. And who among us haven't been in that position? Sure. And I felt like we were all you in that yeah. moment. And but I just wanted folks to know, so we're looking in front of us, there's a, a five minute clock that's, that's counting down. Mm. And so when you sit down, and also uh, oftentimes because I sit next to the gentle lady from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is on my right, and the gentle lady uh, from uh, Michigan, um, Rashida Tlaib is on my left, um, you know, great friends of mine, and we have an alignment of values and care about many of the same policy priorities. But every time people see that shot, they'll say, well, where's Ilhan? Like we move in some unit. Mm, yeah. <laughs> well, Ilhan <laughs> serves on foreign policy and she serves on education and labor. We are there because we serve on this committee and we don't move as a unit. They decide where we sit. Right. I think I just want people to have context for this. You know, the, the chair, um, th those decisions are made based on seniority. So the reason why Rashida, myself, and Alex all sit on that front row, but what is the last row of questioning is you are up to ask your line based on this back and forth of the most senior Republican, then the most senior Dem, the most senior Republican, then the most senior Dem. So by the time they get to us, you might have also seen I questioned Secretary Mnuchin, the Secretary of Treasury, about why we have not redesigned our currency mm, to have Harriet Tubman on the 20s, right? Um, and 
uh, actually he had come before the committee before and right before he was getting to that last row, which is the, fr the, the last row of questioners, but what is the front line of what the press and people usually see, he said he had a hard stop. So sometimes we think they do that on purpose <laughs> because they know we'll leverage our platforms and they don't, and it's sort of like this one, two, three punch. Yeah. But, but that's why, uh, so it, I just found him callous and dismissive and smug and um, he is clearly unqualified to be at the helm of an agency charged with managing our crumbling infrastructure. They have completely walked away from public housing. They have completely walked away from affordable housing. They have completely walked away from protecting people from discrimination in housing. Um, and it is, um, it, it's unconscionable. And uh, I think his talents would have been better suited for Surgeon General. Yeah, um, 100%. But I think the occupant of the White House said, oh, housing and urban development. Okay, mm -hmm. he's black and mm -hmm. we'll put him there. Right, right. So, uh, you know. So while we're on him, um, we wanted to specifically talk about a proposal from HUD that would affect 196 of our Cambridge residents. So that's roughly 59 families. So under current HUD rules, families are allowed to live together in subsidized housing, even if one member of the family is uh, an ineligible immigrant. And HUD prorates the subs subsidy for the household, so any family members who declare that they are not eligible are excluded from the benefits. So this new proposal, as we understand it, would change the rules so that even if one member of the family was undocumented, it would prevent the whole family from living in subsidized housing, even if the ineligible individual is not receiving benefits. And so the a way we're understanding this proposed policy um, is that it would mean if two parents were living with their children and one parent was a citizen, mm -hmm. the other was undocumented sure. and not receiving receiving benefits, the whole family would lose their subsidized housing or no longer be eligible. So are we understanding this correctly? You are. And that, that's why I'm, I'm, I'm rocking this uh, lapel pin today. This says families belong together. Uh, th this is a pin that's been inspired by the humanitarian crisis at the border. But I remind people every day that that humanitarian crisis exists and is growing right here in the Massachusetts 7th. And so whether you're talking about the impact of discriminatory housing policies when it comes to mixed immigration status families or whether you're talking about those that are reentering who have been incarcerated that want to reunify with their families or whether you're talking about uh, one strike policies that result in the evictions of people and we certainly see a, a profiling and a targeting of who's impacted by that okay. families belong together they belong they belong together period and um, this policy again it's um, uh, it, it will destabilize and devastate families and whole communities uh, I'll tell you you know just just as an example because I think these things become very abstract for right. people so mm -hmm. you know my guess to the State of the Union um, and I deeply regret um, having brought her because I worry that the, the event scarred her, actually. But um, my guest to the State of the Union is a young woman who lives in East Boston. She's a student at UMass Boston. Her name is Stephanie Pineda. Uh, her family's from El Salvador. She is a dreamer. Her mother is a TPS um, holder, and her father is an asylum seeker. And in the early days of my congressional tenure, again, I've only been there uh, four months, but it feels like 100 years, um, when we were trying to reach a compromise around the federal government shutdown, you know, a Stephanie, like so many others, reached out to me and said, if dreamers are a part of this compromise, but you're not also talking about TPS, if you're not also talking about asylum seekers, you know, I don't want to be a bargaining ch chip in this. I don't want my freedom if you can't ensure the freedom 
of my entire family and of our entire community. And I said, you know, here's a young woman demonstrating a level of selflessness and patriotism that we can't even get the occupant of this corner office um, to exhibit, you know, and to, and to demonstrate. Um, and so most families are mixed immigration status. Right. Mm -hmm. And so um, this would prove uh, really devastating and result in the separation, um, the eviction and the homelessness. That's right of uh, so many families and so that's why you know I know I'm not supposed to be on here talking about the big I word and I don't want to give my my comms director a complete freak out over there but you know I, I do support uh, impeachment because and and have been on the early you know for weeks on the early resolution uh, in support of initiating uh, impeachment um, you know investigations and proceedings um, when people say well you know, we, we got to sort of just continue to tactically move this ball up the field and make the case. And just like people ask me every day, are you are you apathetic? Are you cynical about uh, this sort of inflection point and how polarized we are and how seemingly dysfunctional government is right now? And I said, you know, I don't have the luxury of being apathetic or cynical. And I don't think that people that live in the Massachusetts 7th have the luxury of our waiting. This district is 53% people of color, 40% foreign born. You know, so I think if you are not a... a if you are not a member of a marginalized community, if you are not an immigrant, if you are not, um, you know, queer, if you're not LGBTQ, if you're not a woman, mm -hmm. um, then then maybe you would feel like we can wait. Right. But you know, families are living on the margins and in fear. Uh, and you know, it's it's I'm an Aquarian, and so Aquarius is you know by default are are, are dramatic. <laughs> you know, we're very dramatic. <laughs> and so you know, I was actually thinking about changing my Twitter profile just to say effortlessly dramatic, right? <laughs> um, and you know, and I and I and I, I like uh, I like words and language and things like that. And so you know, I think people expect that people. Um, on their soapbox or on the mic um, might inflate things, right, and embellish for the purposes of drama or storytelling. But everything we're telling you right now is the truth. You know, these threats are real. These threats are real. These threats are real. I was just appointed as chair of the by my colleagues very humbly um, the, as, of the Abortion Access Task Force under the Pro-Choice Caucus. Mm. And it's, it's, I mean, these threats are real. I fear for myself. I fear for my daughter. Um, and, and I feel, uh, as an elected official and all of us here, we're supposed to be assuaging people's anxieties, right? Mm -hmm. We're supposed to be, you know, giving them, them confidence and hope and restoring and building their trust, you know, but we're all afraid too, right? <laughs> we're a part of, you know, these are not just our constituents and our, these are the communities we live in. Right. Exactly. These are our families and, and we don't have all the answers because this is unprecedented in every way. Yeah. And I think what just to go back to talking about how this really affects this particular community. I mean, if you think about 196 residents that might be out on the street if this proposal was to go through, I mean, that's those are real families that then we have to somehow try to find housing for. I and mean, we can't have 59 families out on the street right. because of this. Right. And because of the divestments uh, and the programs that have been eliminated under this administration, and I would argue even some, you know, under the, the prior administration, you know, like the Rule 202 about elderly assisted and supportive yeah. housing, right? So there's so there have been some things happening in HUD, you know, for a while, but certainly um, now we're at a very draconian phase in what we see happening at HUD that um, threatens the very foundation and stability of family. Um, you know, so some of the things that I've been looking at are, you know, I do see housing as a critical determinant of health. Uh, I do think, you know, maybe 
um, Medicaid coverage should should include housing um, because it is a critical determinant of health, right? Um, I'm very proud that under the leadership of Chairwoman Maxine Waters, um, that the Financial Services Committee, we convened uh, the first hearing uh, in front of this committee on the issue of homelessness. Um, she proposed a legislation called the End Homelessness Act, um, which does restore and uh, increase a lot of these investments which have been uh, taken away. And one of the most sobering statistics that was shared is that hearing is that, and that's what's proposed in this legislation, is that you know by prioritizing housing first, that we could end homelessness for the equivalent of the cost of one military aircraft carrier. Just one. That's Just an one. incredible statistic. Yeah. I mean, if you think about how much money we spend not housing people but dealing with the determinants of health afterwards, the medical costs, all of that, it's it's so much more expensive to not have people housed. Absolutely. It's so much more expensive. A- absolutely. Um, so. And I, so I, getting back to that, I, yeah. I did watch a committee hearing where you were talking about um, the disparate health outcomes for kids who live in public or affordable housing that hasn't been invested in, as you mentioned earlier, and keeping it safe. And this can cause a lot of respiratory illnesses in children, which could lead from them to being absenteeism, which can you know, widen the achievement gap. Um, I'm just curious if you could tell us a little bit more about your work there um, on the national level um, to better fund the housing that we have um, to yeah. have better health outcomes for our kids. You know, this is something that's yeah, deeply important no, so, to me. I'm so grateful for your, your leadership in this space. And um, you, you said probably everything that I, that I would have said, <laughs> except again, I'll just reiterate that um, when it comes to families and the health of families and the health of children, you know, every day, um, and, and I don't ever want us to become desensitized to it. It seems we're learning about another child that's died at the border in custody, right? Um, but there are children, again, there's a humanitarian crisis in the Massachusetts 7th, in this congressional district and in our country, there are children that have died in public housing mm-hmm. because there are no carbon monoxide right. detectors. Yeah. I mean, this is unconscionable. Uh, we are the richest you know, in a developed nation. And, you know, right here on American soil, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, you have children that, um, it, it, as I said to Secretary Carson, you know, um, Doris Bunty, who is, is someone that I admire tremendously, and um, she's one of the matriarchs of our community. She was the first public housing tenant to rise to the ranks to actually head a housing authority in the country. Doris Bunty, um, a former state rep, first black woman elected to the House in Massachusetts. Um, in the, in uh, the state house, and um, she said that you know being poor is not a character flaw, mm-hmm. but you know this is an administration that criminalizes and vilifies. I mean, Secretary Carson was ostensibly inferring that people live in public housing because of a lack of um, of a desire to be self sufficient that they are able-bodied and we shouldn't be making public housing too comfortable because they might never feel an incentive to get out of it. And, and I had to explain to him, do you know in the Massachusetts 7th that someone would have to work 84 hours a week to afford a decent one bedroom at market rate? That's right. Don't right. talk to me mm-hmm. about incentives. We are failing people. You know, on every single level. And you can't do anything without housing. You can't do anything. It all starts there. And so one of the things that we've been, um, you know, uh, fighting for, and and who knows, again, what will happen with this administration because they stonewall and obstruct at every turn, but is to get housing as a defined 
element or component of infrastructure. That infrastructure is not just roads and bridges. Mm -hmm. That infrastructure is housing. And in the definition of infrastructure, on the federal level, housing is not included. So when we learn that we, there might actually be an appetite and an opportunity and a willingness to move uh, an infrastructure bill in a bipartisan fashion, this was even a priority of the occupant in the corner office, we got excited and said, okay, now let's change the definition, mm -hmm. amend it to include housing, and get the investments that we need to grow our stock. Because the thing, again, that I was saying to Secretary Carson is that you are um, shrinking the stock and then not increasing supply right. for the most vulnerable people. I mean, I feel like this administration has just been a war on low-income residents um, consistently, and this is just another another place where they're just this administration is just trying to destabilize by even just talking about some of these policies that maybe they don't even have any interest in implementing. It's all about destabilizing and creating that anxiety. Um, and I don't know how you combat that. I don't know how you do it every day, yeah. but thank you for doing it. Yeah, I mean, how we do it is that, you know, even if Mitch McConnell has very proudly asserted that he is going to be, a, what did he call himself, the, the grave, uh, well, he's going he's gonna to kill everything that we send there. I mean, I mean, without even, it's not even a one-off. There's no consideration. So the Senate has said, whatever we send out of the House, they're going to kill. They're not going to move on. And so, you know, people say, well, well, if that's true, then why does it matter what any of you do? Because we still have to lead and legislate exactly. on these issues of consequence to the American people. I think when people get cynical about government, it's not just the gridlock. It's not just what appears to be partisanship. And they're saying, grow up already. Be adults. We need you to lead. Well, listen, this Democratic majority, we're doing our job. Mm -hmm. And I think... Um, we need to be able to look our constituents in the eye and to and to say, you know, with with a surety that we are. And that's why we've continued to lead on everything from gun violence to housing to consumer protection um, to voting rights. And so we're going to continue to to move uh, legislation. Yeah, and we have to continue. And fight for those investments. So. Yeah, I got to keep calling it out. I'm a proud product of Cambridge Public Housing and the the assumptions and the just the the stereotype. Lack, yeah, the yeah. stereotype and lack of, you know, facts that people actually use to to um discriminate against people who and think a certain way it's just we have to call it out so i thank you for calling yeah. those stereotypes and, out. and actually you know i would love to i know i can't call in but some other time i'd love to come on when the appropriations process is behind us and then i can speak more specifically about you know some of the the positive things um and the investments that we were able to get and what that will mean for the Massachusetts 7th and for Cambridge specifically. Well, we'd love to have you come back. Yeah. Okay. So in Cambridge, we've had a lot of conversations about zoning and the history of redlining and how zoning still plays a major role in affecting mobility and wealth. Uh, is looking at restrictive zoning something that's part of your equity agenda? You mean zoning reform? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, those were things that I, um, I led on on the council and now I'm finding... Um, you know, ways to, to address that on the federal level. On the issue of redlining specifically, what really shocked me, so I serve on financial services, so financial institutions are under our jurisdiction. Um, the financial services um, uh, industry, banking, are, are one of the main drivers of our economy here in the Massachusetts 7th. And it shocked me that 98% of, um, of our banking institutions are passing 
um, the Community Reinvestment Act examinations, they are passing the CRA, but many of them are still practicing redlining. And so what needs to happen um, if we really are serious about income inequality and we want to level the playing field when it comes to wealth and we have to catch up in so many ways, which is why I also support reparations or the study to figure mm-hmm. out what those reparations should be and mm-hmm. how we would go about that, uh, the bill introduced by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee. So we're, we're playing catch up here. If we're really serious about that, then we have to address the discriminatory lending and how that has resulted in segregated housing, segregated schools, and um, this, uh, this wealth gap with very sharp contrast along race lines. And so we need to modernize the Community Reinvestment Act, and we need to put race-specific language in there because the practice of redlining is still going on. So these banks, again, are passing these examinations, um, uh, decisively so, to the tune of 98%, but the discrimination still exists. And so that's what we're, mo- that's what we're advocating for, is that we modernize the CRA. I think that's an incredible point. I mean, we've been talking about this uh, here in Cambridge. It's been a big topic of conversation. We've had um, the, I'm not remembering his name, the author of The Color of Law come a couple Richard Rothstein, yeah. Thank you. um, Come a few times to talk to our community around redlining, really making sure that people understand the racist practices and the banking um, institutions that supported those. Um, So, you know, we've been talking about affordable housing a lot here in Cambridge. as one of the ways to address the inequity and in zoning here. Um, and one of the proposals we've been talking about is an affordable housing overlay. So just to explain, um, it would help relax some zoning, allowing increased height and FAR for only a f- 100% affordable housing projects. This affordable would also, this overlay would also change the planning board review of these projects from a discretionary review to a design review process that would make them exempt from a butter legal challenges. Hmm. Um, our affordable housing builders are really hesitant to purchase land because under current zoning, they're often unable to build enough units to make the financing work as of right. But with higher heights and denser buildings, um, they would have the fear of a protracted legal battle and they feel that this overlay would allow them to provide more affordable units each and every year. Not a ton more, but more. Uh, and the city is making a sizable commitment financially to help fund these additional units. But as you can imagine, it's generated quite a lot of interest here among residents. And the concerns have been about how the additional height and density would affect the neighborhood feeling, and that removing the planning board discretionary reprocess would lead to shoddy and ugly buildings. Uh, it's been a really hard conversation in the community, and people are feeling like they're being pitted against each other and that you're on a side. Um, and for me, I grew up in the Fresh Bond Apartments over in North Cambridge. So those, and I, yes, we, we, you do we, 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 we went around. there. I took you around there. <laughs> yeah. And, I know, you know you're a counselor, but I, I don't know. You seem like the mayor or the governor or people calling those buildings ugly. It, it upsets me because it's these are people's homes, right? And, and it's a community. It's yeah. a community and people are, you know, we don't want buildings like that. And we and they're so ugly. And yeah, we, we don't want to build things like that. And, and it's like it's hard. You, you, it's hard because it's like, a it's like we don't build housing like that anymore. But even if we did, you know, th- you know, let's just take a moment. There's little girls and little boys growing up and you're here um, saying uh, their homes are ugly. So it- it's been this it's been a difficult conversation. So what would you suggest in terms of bringing people to the table in a productive way to really talk about this issue in a meaningful way that makes people f- part of the process? Hmm. Do you have any ideas? Well, you know, I, I, I speak about um this conflict and this this pitting against um you know a lot with a number of my colleagues and, and in fact um 
Representative Ocasio-Cortez and I, um, something that she lifts up a lot is the scarcity mindset, right? Yeah. And, you know, I had spoken about how there was a period where I was um, very honored to participate in a, a fellowship through the Aspen Institute. I was a, a Rodell Fellow, and it's a public policy fellowship for 24 months um, uh, with 24 participants, 12 Democrats, 12 Republicans. And one of the things the professor said to me there um, that really resonated with me is that it's not that people are averse to change um, or resistant to change. They're averse to loss. Yes. And so, again, mm. I'm just laying that over with the conversations that, I, that I've had with my colleagues around a scarcity mindset. So right now everything becomes everyone is saying, see me and see my hurt. And without meaning to, there's this hierarchy of hurt that's being perpetuated, this dynamic and dichotomy of like an oppression Olympics. And I mean, I see it, I see it on my platforms, I see it in meetings, that if, if, I, if I lift up this dynamic, uh, someone is saying, what about me, what about me? You know, I'm hurting, I, I'm losing. I'm... So um, it, it sounds uh, cliche and, and, and perhaps, um, um, not pragmatic enough, but we have to get people to see the humanity, you know, in one another and each other's lived experiences. Um, because right now, how everything is being processed is that my um, amplifying of your lived experience and my giving you dignity in some way means that I will have less. And that's how everything is being processed. And that is because we have a, a, a deficit of resource. Yeah. But I believe that deficit of resource is informed by deficit of empathy and compassion. And so it all comes back to that. Um, you know, having been a city councilor, I, you know, you're in an unenviable position uh, when it comes to these, con these conversations. But I do believe that and how we try to, to govern is cooperatively to lift up and to listen to and to lean in to the people that are most impacted by an issue. Um, that even if we have our own biases based on our lived experiences or our politics, that we are actively listening to both sides and learning. Um, I found in the process of legislating that every law that I've proposed or that has been passed um, has been much more robust and um, more inclusive and more representative when I was actively engaging dissenting opinion in order to honor what everyone's experiences are. But I, I do want to say this, and I want to say one more thing about the Ben Carson thing, because I think it's important that people know how they can help to change that, okay? Mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the rule around uh, um, mixed immigration status families. But, uh, you know, Sumble, what you were saying about people, the character of the neighborhood, you know, what do you define as character? I'll never forget when I was running for the Boston City Council, and someone said, what are you going to do about all the homeless people on the benches in the park? It's, um, it's unsightly. And it's frightening for my mother, who's elderly, and I don't want to take my kids to the park. And I said, I'm going to focus on ending homelessness, right? And so it's like, get to the root thing. Uh, do you think that I should just be moving that person experiencing homelessness somewhere else? This is public accommodation. This park is open to everyone. And so for you, this is about blight. But I want to talk to you about brokenness, right? broken systems, broken people. Again, there, but for the grace of God, go I. This could be any of us. Most people that are experiencing homelessness are working poor. Right. That's why you're called the working poor, because you never stop working. Mm -hmm. And most people that are living in shelters are employed, 
right? Or they're there because of domestic violence or because of medical debt or, you know, so many other, other, um, you know, elements like that. So, so my advice is that we continue to find ways to govern cooperatively, that when we talk about character, it's not just about design, right. but it's about who we are, you know, as a city right. and as, and as a community, because to me, the highest demonstration of character is that we protect our most vulnerable and that in every, um, neighbor, um, we see ourselves and that that guides the decisions that we make. I mean, our population, you know, is set to grow. I mean, in Boston alone, by 100,000 people by 2030. Yeah. yeah. How are we going, you know? And, and I think we, we've got to this point where we just think of all of this as shelter. Like we're just warehousing people. You know, I mean, this is, you know, that's a whole nother thing. I'm talking about mass incarceration, but you know, this is not just about shelter and just giving, you know, people space. This is about giving people good health. This is about social and economic mobility. Exactly. This is about community. This is about the preservation of family, the sanctity of human life. And if you value it and housing is everything, it's the core of this ecosystem. So on the Ben Carson, um, uh, situation that we talked about at the top of this hour, I just want to say that it's important to remember that that is a proposed rule. That is not law. It is a proposed rule. So we are in the, the middle of public comment. Right. And people should be weighing in. It ends June and, 30th. And June 30th okay. and, and offering, you know, how this will impact their family and, and why this cannot become uh, the rule of law. And I know our housing authority is putting together something pretty yeah. strongly, but I, you know, we will definitely share ways where people can yes, get involved. Yes, please in weigh comment. in, Absolutely. weigh in. But I just want to go back to something that you said um, around the character of the neighborhood. One of our housing advocates here, um, Cheryl Ann Pizzi-Zioli, who sadly just passed away, um, oh. always used to say the character of the neighborhood is about the characters who live there. It's not about the buildings. Right. It's not about what they look like. And um you know, it's it is really hard to have these conversations when you feel so personally involved in, you know, Sambal, you grew up in, in public housing. I grew up very low income. And when I hear people talk about not wanting certain people next door, I immediately feel very personal about it. And my my job right now yeah. is to try to feel not so personally about yeah. my right. own it's hard. experience. But it's, it's really it's hard. It's hard not to. And, and that is what I actually what I said to Secretary Carson. I said, you know, this isn't we're not this supposed to be about, you know, policies and politics and we're not supposed to make it personal. But it is personal. Right. You know, you react because it's personally. About the right. Because <laughs> right. it is yeah. deeply personal. And um, so, you know, never uh, please. I don't ever want you all to, to diffuse or filter uh, that passion, that emotion, and that compassion that you bring uh, to the work every day. It's why you are, why you have the respect of your peers. It's why you have the respect and the trust of your constituents. So don't be apologist about that. But I think we're all struggling to make sure that we don't, um, in the same way that we hate being uh, assumptions being made about us or being vilified, that we're not doing the same. Yeah. So we'll keep you posted on what happens. It's, uh, going to be yeah, many more conversations. Many more conversations, and we're hoping to have some more conversations with the public that are not as contentious, like maybe more town holly or, you know, we've been having a lot of these conversations within and among the city staff and the city councilors, and then the public kind of comes and just kind of talks at us. There's not a lot of free fall of information, and I think that's made it a really hard way to have that collaborative work that you were talking about and really having people feel involved in, in moving this process so forward. So I would say, I mean, that's definitely, you know, um, 
a, a number of my colleagues, uh, it's sort of become a talking point. You know, I've done 15 town halls and, you know, 30 days and that kind of thing. And a lot of people, when they think about members of Congress engaging and being in community with their constituents, their frame for that is a town hall. You know, um, I see a value in them, but it is not my preferred vehicle because I think um, it's very difficult for there to be an equality of voice. Um, in those spaces, there's sort of two or three people that come that yeah. speak and they sort of speechify. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the, the, the elected tries to sort of, you know, either confirm or correct. And then there are many, many people that have concerns and real questions that are never addressed. And so I, I think it, it's always more productive. And that's what we've done in our equity um, uh town halls they're Which really I've never round been tables. able to get there they're incredible you know and, and i just want to give a shout out to the entire a team but um yes yeah, shout out to the a team yeah, by the way you guys are amazing. Uh, we know how you. hard you guys work yeah shout out to the a team but um and you know everyone is different you know more recently we did one on transit equity which was in chelsea and which people here in cambridge loved by the way there oh, were so many wow. cambridge people i'm yeah. so glad to hear that but we what we did was we did sort of mini ted talks so we 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 had people speak from like four different lived experiences on public transit and then we used each of those um those profiles as a jump start and a framer for then what we would accomplish in our working groups so i had Mm -hmm. um you know as we had a young person, you know, that's that um, that lives in a low-income family that spoke about their experience. We had a person, uh, you know, um, living with a disability, talk about, you know, uh, the challenges in, in navigating um, uh, public transit. Um, we had someone who's an avid uh, cyclist, cyclist come mm-hmm. talk about the contrasting experiences, um, Cambridge versus Dorchester, you know, um, and and so all of those things framed it. But we've been very nimble and you know, uh, creative in how we design them. But the one thing that has remained the same is that we keep them intimate Um, because the bigger it gets, the harder it is to have um, a real um, idea share and information share, a dialogue, Mm -hmm. and to really get at uh, again, seeing the humanity in each other. Are those online somewhere? Where if, if How we promote them? them and stuff? No, I mean, I would love to see. Are they oh, recorded? I don't know. Um, I, I don't, you know, we don't usually like live stream them or anything. Yeah. Occasionally <laughs> you'll see some, some, um, some snippets of things well, I'll on have to just social come media to platforms. <laughs> we should go. Well, we'll, we'll let you know. I mean, okay. we should, um, and, and we'll definitely do, do one in Cambridge, but these equity agenda, roundtables were spurred on by the campaign we've just continued to do them and the reason why it's framed in equity is because um that's the lens with which i view everything is um it is uh, our how do we address these inequities and how do we how do we uh realize um especially i view everything through a lens of equity and health and so um, these inequities are across every issue. So Absolutely. public health, transit, public education, housing, um, economic uh, development, and wealth. And so that's why the frame of everything is equity. And then the subset within that will be whatever the specific issue area is. And I think that's why we appreciate you exactly. so much. And I, th- I hope that you know that. Like I, No one ever really tells you when you're doing a good job. People want to tell you oh when you're doing gosh, a bad you, job. Are you kidding me? You guys do but, shine theory all the time. No, but you are. No, you really, really are. Feel I really that appreciate you. you. And I, I know amazing. that I can speak for so many people that we just are so thrilled that you're there using that lens 
each and every day on every single issue and and really shining a light on so many of the issues that are important to our residents here in Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our lived experiences are intersectional. And so the legislative fixes have to be holistic and and intersectional as well. But I thank you all, um, you know, for, uh, supporting our, our disruptive long shot candidacy <laughs> and, and all, the, all the political capital that you expended and the sweat equity uh, to make our victory possible. And um, I want, you know, nothing more than to be a good partner to effectuate change and to make you all proud and that you feel that it was all worth it. And, oh, uh, yeah. and I'm excited uh, to get out there for you all. Oh, I can't wait for sure. that. That'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, excited to get out, to get out there for you as well. But just thank you for being great partners and, and stewards of social and economic and racial justice. Thank well, you so much. We're so grateful that you came on today. Thank you so much for sharing your, your time and your energy with us. I know, um, I'm really grateful. Thank yeah, you. you're amazing, and from a fellow Aquarius to another. <laughs> uh, and we now we have some new shows to check out, girlfriends. Yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yes, and yeah. before we leave it, how's your leg? How's your knee? Oh my goodness! <laughs> so so so. Are so, you wearing so, like so, regular so, shoes? Calamity Jane. <laughs> so here's here's the thing. So I tore my MCL. Um, I uh, had a bad fall and tore my MCL, and I have chronic knee problems. Oh. So that's just. And of course, we're heading into both commencement and parade season. So mm. I will. Um, not be walking in parades, okay? Um, but my my MCL is uh it's healing. Good. Um, and and people, it's one of those things when you have an injury that people can't see, so they make a lot of assumptions about where you are in your journey. So I'm not in a wheelchair anymore. Grateful for that. Not on crutches. Grateful for that. Um, not in sneakers. Grateful for that. Um, but the main reason I'm grateful I'm not in sneakers is not because of vanity. It's because actually I'm completely flat-footed. I have no mm. arch. And so a flat shoe is wildly uncomfortable for me. It is painful. Mm-hmm. And so um, I have been uh, still with a torn MCL. I'm much better at this stage in my recovery in like a wedge or like some yeah. sort of a heel or something. But I'm just so glad to have a little bit of my independence back. I'm telling you the three biggest adjustments to being a member of Congress. One, I have to fly all the time. For those of you that don't know me, I am a very panicked flyer. I am afraid to fly. I hate it. And the fact that I have um, chosen um, (laughs) for my life's work um, and that flight and, and, between and to, Boston to, and DC is the worst too. I'm just gonna tell you, I can't, girl. I don't even really get it. So, <laughs> but, the, but the point is, so I, I, I'm not a good flyer. The second is. Um, I've always had a respect for this institution and for the sacrifices that public servants make in terms of quality of life and time with family. But I have a renewed appreciation because I'm away from my 10-year-old daughter and my husband five days a week. We vote five days. People think we vote three days. This is a Democratic majority. We vote five, okay? And so, you know, I'm landing and going right to a speech or a fundraiser and then Saturdays are like a campaign day. I'm literally lucky if I get four hours of protected time with my husband and my child. And so, um, you know, they make those sacrifices right along with me because they believe this is about something bigger, you know, than Mm -hmm. all of us. Um, But that is hard. So I underestimated the stress of the travel, um, the stress and the loneliness of being away from family. Um, And um, uh, there was one other thing that I that I wanted to. Oh, but on the knee front, a lot of members of Congress have shin splints. Um, arthritis, I mean, of varying ages. <laughs> the marble floors are so <laughs> unforgiving. Killer, right? And you do so much walking and mm-hmm. so much standing. I mean, my typical day, I mean, it's no different than yours. It's probably like, you know, 8 to 9.30 um, every day. And sometimes I could be in a committee hearing, you know, for, you know, three, you know, two full committees and subcommittee, mm. meet with constituents, go do all those things. And sitting is painful. 
Oh yeah. Like when you have yeah, to do it, it for yeah, a long abso- time, absolutely. People, people make fun of me, but I hate sitting in my chair for like five hours, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, someone in these Twitter trolls, I mean, they get me every time somebody, you know, my, my team, I've worked it out. I, I get, you know, there's, I, they told me that I have a quota. I can like, you know, I can respond to maybe two Twitter trolls like a week, <laughs> but I haven't done it for weeks. So I've been building it up. Nice. Yeah. So I can like for really. for a special day. Okay. But this one Twitter troll um, when I was in committee hearing was like, you know, you want to do us a favor and not be drinking your mocha latte frappuccino in the middle of a committee hearing. Very unprofessional. Homeboy, I've been here six hours. <laughs> Seriously. I have not eaten. <laughs> That whipped cream is your lunch. Get out right, of here. Right. Get out of here. I've been holding my bladder for 45 minutes. Ridiculous. Yes. I'm going to drink my cold brew, okay? I'm you. I'm protecting everybody in this room. I'm just telling you, when I drink that cold brew, facts. At least it's not okay. like Cadbury eggs. <laughs> Someone and I have like a stash of Cadbury eggs that oh we, my gosh. it is not pretty. Oh, those are it's not all good, on video. Though. It's all on video. I like jelly beans though. I like jelly beans though. But Listen, you just got to get through. But yeah. I want to say this also just last thing on Twitter trolls when we talk about TV shows and everything and just how, and, and I was saying yesterday I gave the the address at uh, the, the black Harvard commencement. Mm-hmm. And I was saying that, you know, joy is an act of resistance. And so don't be an apologist. Like the, this administration, they're coming for everything. Don't give them your joys. You got to still find joy. Right. And so mm-hmm. it was a late night. I had been in committee and markup all day. And I got home at like 930. At 10 o'clock, I'm on my computer because you're preparing your line of questioning for like two and a half, three hours for the next day. Right. right? And so I'm doing that. And I just sent a tweet because on the background while I was working was this other show I love called um, 90 Day Fiance. Okay. I'm fascinated by this. Okay. Do you know this show? I need that. Okay. (laughs) All right. 90 Day Fiance. No, no. I'm lying. It was Married at First Sight. Oh, I love that show. Married at First Sight. I love that show. Okay. So I. You're like working. So I'm working. So I sent a tweet and I'm like, I am so glad that they decided to not stay together because homeboy is trifling. And these are all the reasons why. And within about 30 seconds, these little Twitter trolls with their little like, you know, this get a life, you know, they. And so they're like, well, you should be paying attention to Mueller. And why are you this and that? You know, and so just because I didn't want to deal with it, I deleted the tweet. But I just want to say, like, that's the insanity of where we are. If I post a thing about my family, people will say, you know, why are you posting that? We don't care. You know, get to your job. Do your work. I mean, it's just like the the vitriol, you know, so. But, like, those tweets are reaching people like us, right? Like, I remember during your campaign where you were like, I am so hungry every single night. I just eat a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios. And I was like, she is just like me. (laughs) Did you feel seen? I felt seen. No, actually, you know what? That tweet went so viral because it wasn't about me eating cereal. (laughs) It was that I was eating it with like a serving spoon because I couldn't find a regular spoon. And I was like, where did the spoons go? Are they where the rubber bands are and the socks? And the earrings. Like, I just gotta Where eat do the, the spoons go? Yeah. And so then everyone started being like, "Yeah, the spoons disappear in our house too." And then and then someone. Everyone felt seen. Everyone felt seen. And then somebody made up a Twitter profile that was a spoon. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and they wrote they wrote back to me and they said, "You'll never find me." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So anyway, thank you, yeah. ladies, so much. Thank you, thank you so, so much, much for being here. <clears throat> and we will talk to you soon. Yeah, this is the best guest we will ever have. Uh, and hopefully, we'll see you soon. See you soon, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Good job. Thanks.